Hey everybody, welcome to the Chan's Logic People Project, where we talk about people, their trials and tribulations, and everything that happened along the way. Today I have Phyllis with me. She's super exciting. She's got a great story, and she's got some awesome things to tell you. Why don't you introduce yourself, Phyllis? Hi Chandler, thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm Phyllis Ginsberg, and I'm excited to be here. I don't know, uh, oh, introduce myself. So, what do you want to know? Yeah, tell me a little bit about who you are. What makes you tick? Well, I am a person who's been on a personal growth journey since my late teens. I had some situations happen early in life. Some people get their challenges later in life. I had mine earlier in life. And as a result of that, I became a therapist, an author, and... Um, I don't know, but right now I think about the journey rather than the destination. And I would look back and say, I'm, I'm grateful for it and excited about what's next. Yeah, that makes sense. I like it. So let's, let's take it way back. Let's talk about your backstory. How did you get to where you are today? How, what got you to the point where you wanted to start that personal growth journey? Talk to me about the backstory, the way back. Let's, let's take it back a little. Yeah, so way, way back. Uh, well, I was uh, born to a mom who had arthritis already. So she was in chronic pain, migraine headaches, uh, my sister and I am a twin we were honeymoon babies so we weren't planned expected they didn't even know they were gonna have two of us the doctor said you'll have an eight pound baby boy and they ended up with two four pound girls uh, typical my mom stayed home and my dad went to work so he wasn't around much but the one thing that really that I remember a lot was my mom was angry and I can understand why when I put the pieces together as an adult that she wasn't feeling well, she was in chronic pain with arthritis, migraine headaches. And so when people don't feel well, they tend to take it out on other people and I got the brunt of it. If you can't function well, then you, you seem to want to control other people. And I learned how to cook and clean at a really young age. I knew that if I did what I needed to do, that that would help keep me safe. And so by six, seven, eight years old, I taught myself how to cook. I could clean like perfectly. I remember the broiler pan. One time I was cooking, I don't know, like lamb chops or something, and it looked horrible. Well, it took me about an hour or two scrubbing it. And I'm seven years old and I got that thing sparkling clean, like brand new. And I think I got a lot of praise for it. And so I thought, oh, cleaning, this is a good thing. And when you're seven years old, you make those kinds of decisions and then play it out uh, pretty much for the rest of your life. Like, oh, I can clean really well. So, that's kind of how things started growing up. And then as I got a bit older, I didn't have as much um, guidance and supervision and things like that, but I also didn't have much freedom to go anywhere or do anything because we lived on this big hill. <clears throat> so life was pretty isolating. School was, was okay. I was just an average student. I think I was concerned more about home life and a little bit challenged academically to stay focused. Uh, really good in math, not so good in geography. <laughs> I remember seeing my report card uh, as an adult and like, oh wow, I got a D in geography. And I didn't remember that, but I was pretty much a a B or a C student, except for math, I, I definitely got plenty of A's in that. And so I just went along and by the time that I was 15 years old, uh, had just turned 15, 
my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and it looked like she was doing better. I don't even know what kind of treatment she had. No one in my family really talked about anything. My dad didn't do well with medical stuff. And then my sister and I went to dinner. Uh, my mom was in the hospital for a few weeks because the cancer had come back or she needed more treatment. I don't, I don't even know what we were told, but we could walk from our school to go visit her. And when we, when we went there, she seemed okay. Like, I don't know. I didn't understand why she was in the hospital. And I, the one thing that I knew growing up is it wasn't okay to ask. Like I didn't have permission to ask questions and maybe I could have, but it didn't seem like things ever went well when I did. So I probably shut that piece down way early on. And three weeks later, we get this call. We were at dinner with somebody who was kind enough to take us out and uh, she had died. And no one told us she was dying. So it was, it was a shock and a relief. So that's, that's a huge defining moment. Yeah, that's that's always one of the more difficult things to get through, especially when you're you're in a position to where you're not supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to think about it. You're not supposed to bring it up. And then all of a sudden you get hit with something like that happening. It kind of shifts everything you're doing in a sort of 360 way. Right. And then shortly after, like, I think the next day, well, the next day we're planning a funeral. My dad was doing that. And like three days later, he's packing up all her clothes, carted it off to donate. And it was as if she never existed. We never talked about her like for decades. Yeah, that's interesting. And when you don't talk about it, it tends to leave those feelings and those thoughts and everything that you're wondering just buried. And eventually mm -hmm. it, it kind of blows up and, and causes problems and ha has an impact on your life full scale as you grow. So as, as this kind of happened and your dad didn't, your dad moved on quickly, it sounds like, and you didn't have the opportunity to talk about it or even grieve. What was going on with you internally? How were you thinking and how were you feeling and how did this impact you later on? Well, that is a great question. Looking back, I remember going back to school like the next Monday and the teacher in our humanities class said, we're going to make a family tree. And I just talked to the teacher and said, I can't do this. I don't have anybody to ask. I'm, you know, like I just lost my mom. I, I can't do this. Can't ask my dad. Like, and we didn't have much other family. So I knew that was not something that was going to happen. Uh, and what I ended up doing was just, moving on shelving the grief but i had so many thoughts and questions and was just wondering like what happens when you die and where did you go and like it just opened up a whole bunch of this unknown and being with that was very distracting because i didn't have anybody else that, like my peers that could relate to this I didn't know anybody else who lost a parent at a young age. Uh, so it was very, very alone feeling. My sister did not do well with it. And so I couldn't talk to her about it because she was angry and hostile. And I knew I didn't want to do that. So I retreated and I was, I would say pretty depressed for a couple of years. Going to school, I could go there, sit in a classroom. If no one talked to me, I could go for days without talking to anybody. No, and it was a, a sad time, not the way I would want anybody to deal with grief or as you say, not deal with it. And I didn't have to deal with it for a decade till my first daughter was born. Then it all showed up. 
Yeah, that's interesting how long we can shelve grief and, grief and how long we can keep it buried and in, deep inside us if we don't know that we can find a way to talk about it or, or pull it out of what, what we're experiencing and what we're going through. So talk to me about what was going on externally. So we had that we were deep in depression internally. Did you have anything that manifested itself externally along the way as we were going through this and deep diving into this deep depression? Well, I, I think that I just push things aside. I learned at a young age to not feel. Um, so I was able to function well on the outside and nobody really knew what was going on on the inside. Uh, you know, I got through school and I put on some pounds, not like obesely overweight, but carrying a, some extra. And, uh, when I was 19, I decided enough of this, I was going to lose some weight. I, I remember my shoulders feeling really tense and tight, almost like they were up to my ears. And I was in college and I, I did fairly well in the general ed classes, but it was so stressful. I wasn't prepared for that kind of uh, academic situation because I hadn't had to work that hard uh through high school but it it was challenging i was commuting to school because i didn't know how to navigate housing so i had an hour commute uh and i just it was like going through the motions i really didn't feel like i knew what i was doing i just knew i wanted to go to college that it was important and I'm the first in my family to do that. So somewhere around like 19 years old, these changes started happening and I'd had enough of the stress, being overweight, not feeling well. I went to a, this weight loss program. They had us take a blood test and I had super high cholesterol and triglycerides. And I remember my mom having the same. And I thought, I am doomed. Pretty soon I'm gonna end up with arthritis and migraine headaches and go down the same path because back then I believed everything was genetic. And that was my biggest fear. I didn't want to end up suffering from some horrible disease and dying at a young age. And it was amazing that by changing my diet from eating pretty much meat or dairy at every meal and snack, whether it was meat, fish, chicken, all these things with cholesterol, ice cream. My sister and I sometimes would just get a pint of ice cream for, for dinner. Uh, but I knew how to cook and I, I liked vegetables and knew how to cook healthy, but didn't always do that. But I was so motivated and when I was able to lower my cholesterol in six weeks to normal, it was freeing. I felt like I finally had some control over something in my life, that I could do something. I wasn't destined for this horrible life like my mom. I took up meditation. I was able to deal more with my stress. And I took a class in kinesiology which helped me understand my body and that everything's connected. It set the tone for me to live a life of prevention, which is what I've been doing for almost 40 years. Yeah, and that's incredible. So you basically hit a wall at 19 and you you found out that you had high cholesterol and you know, knew that you didn't want to live like your mother and have chronic pain and die at a young age or have complications and problems throughout your life. So that's when you essentially created this epiphany. Hey, I, I need to lower my cholesterol and you did it. And then you said, hey, now I need to f focus and live on a life of prevention. And so this sounds like it was the turning point in your life, the turning point to where you finally at least adjusted your, your physical manifestations into something something that you could use for a, a positive manifestation for yourself. Exactly. I went from survival. I, I went and basically stuck with an eating plan that kept me healthy for survival because I was in such fear 
that I could I could stick to this to a T, like never even think about drifting off the plan because I felt so good and it was wonderful to have this freedom to know I wasn't being governed by my genetics and that was life-changing. Yeah, that's huge. And as you were going through this, did you find any, did you struggle along the way trying to figure it out? Did you have any issues? Uh, what kind of conflicts did you go through when you were losing, lowering your cholesterol and moving into this sort of life of prevention? My biggest challenges that I had were with other people and especially my dad. He did not want me talking about my health, my newfound way of eating, all these wonderful things. Uh, his philosophy back then was, it's better for people to enjoy what they're doing, let them enjoy life. If they wanna eat steaks and whatever, and drink alcohol, uh, let them have a good time. It's better to have 10 good years than 20 bad years. So I did what I learned to do really well was I just kept to myself. I did what I needed to do for me. I was not persuaded to not do what I'm doing. No one said I shouldn't do it. It's just don't try and convert people. As And it wasn't like I was on this mission to make a change and tell people, wow, you should really do this. It'll change your life. It'll make you healthier. It's like, you know, people like to talk about diets and recipes and what they're doing. And that was normal conversation, but it wasn't to, to my dad. And so I, I learned to shut down and just quietly do what I do. Yeah. And it kind of continues to expand on how you grew up where you weren't allowed to talk about your feelings or what you were going through, or what you were experiencing. And now you find something that's really positive for you and changing your life and done and, and essentially has done really well, but you're still not supposed to talk about it or you're still told that you, you shouldn't talk about it or you shouldn't bring it up because it might not look good on you to somebody else who doesn't want to do it. And so did this cause any sort of manifestations from your your past to come about or were you able to essentially deflect it and move on oh it was part of my i call it programming this ability to just do what i do on my own without having to ask permission because i didn't have like parents who were there for me really physically or emotionally that i ever had to ask permission there's things that i didn't do because i didn't want to ask uh, or I assumed it would be a no or not okay. So in that sense, I think that's the, the double-edged sword of, I could do my own thing and not be bothered by anybody. But if I thought about asking, it was like, oh, well, they'll probably say no, so I won't ask. Yeah, that makes sense. So you start to create those sort of narratives of the future. This is what they're probably going to do, so I, I just won't do it. Mm -hmm. And I, I, often I think it holds us back a lot. We start to project, this could happen, so I'm not going to do it instead of, hey, maybe I'll try and maybe they won't say no. Maybe they'll say yes. Maybe I don't know. Maybe we'll check it out and face our fears and figure out what's going on. And so I think that puts you in a place to where you, you, you're afraid to ask a question before you even ask it, which is often tough to have so any sort of interactions with people where you could get into a conflict. Right. And it was very risky to get into conflict as a kid. It felt dangerous. Uh, it, it wasn't safe. And so I avoided it at all cost. Yeah. And that makes sense because if, if it's not safe and it seems like it's not going to go right, we just remove it and we don't, we don't go at it. We avoid it and we get out of the way of, of what it could possibly be. So talk to me about, so you lowered your cholesterol, you're on a good path. The only thing that's stopping you and, and putting you in a place to where you couldn't maybe move forward was your dad who didn't want you to talk about it. Did you continue to make this lifestyle happen? And were, did it remove the depression and things like that that you were suffering from as you aged? Or what happened along the way now after we got to this point? So I had this huge shift in how I felt. I had so much more energy. I felt like I had uh, the ability to create my own physical changes, uh, 
the program that I was in, I think it went for like six weeks. It was an education program. Uh, and once you went through it once, you could come back. I stuck with going back because I felt supported and I liked the information. I was probably the youngest person there uh, amongst people who were ready for bypass surgery and had a heart attack or things like that. Uh, so they were old enough to be my parents or grandparents, but I didn't care. You know, like to me, I think there's this part of me that just knew I needed to be around these people. And that's where I got support. I started exercising, got out of the depression. I still didn't have the ability. Like it, it wouldn't be until later that I went to therapy after the grief showed up after my first daughter was born uh, and realized, wow, there is so much that I have to deal with in order to function, to be able to talk to people, not be so afraid uh, and not worry about offending other people or stirring things up, all of that. And so I went, decided I'm going to go to therapy school. And it wasn't to go help people at that time. It was for me to help myself to become a better person, a better mom, a better wife, parent, like all of that. And it was just what I needed because without the tools that I learned and we had to take all these assessment tests that a psychologist would give so that we could understand them and read, like read them, things like that. Uh, and it was just fascinating to see how my mind worked, how all these things just added up and made me who I was. And I, I realized like, wow, I have some deficits that really need shoring up. I didn't get the parenting I needed. I didn't get the uh, connections that I needed growing up from peers or adults. So I it was like a major work in progress back then. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and when you go to therapy school, you tend to figure out what's one of the best things I think for people is going there to help themselves you, because you start figuring out what, what happened in your past that left you behind, what happened in your past that created the manifestations of the feelings that you have today. And it puts you in a place to where you're at least in a better place to work through it and to make a plan of action to work through it. So when you were in therapy school and you started realizing this, you didn't get the connections and you didn't have the things that you needed as a kid growing up, the parents that you needed to give you that. Did you create the change now? And, and what actions did you take to make it happen? So back when I went to school, which was over like 30 years ago, uh, they, there was a lot being taught about uh, reparenting, parenting like the inner child, that inner child work was uh, a big thing. And all of the theories I could see applied in different ways. I, I do have this gift of being able to see multiple things at one time. Uh, like I can see your point of view. I can see someone else's point of view. I wasn't stuck in any one thing. It's kind of like doing jigsaw puzzles, which I did a lot of as a kid and a teenager being homebound, but I could take all these pieces from different philosophies and integrate them and use them. And so I, I got more of a solid self. I still was doing what I thought I was supposed to do. Like during my internship of 3000 hours and I worked at a family service agency in central California that had two battered women's shelters, rape crisis, the AIDS project, lots of child abuse, uh, high conflict divorce, 52 week batter treatment, anger management, court ordered classes. And I didn't say no to anything. I took on whatever they gave me and, and I got an incredible uh, education where I went to school 
and the internship and the supervision, it opened me up in a way to be able to talk to, to people about really serious stuff, ask them questions and not feel like I was offending them or that I would cause them more pain. They already were, <laughs> when I worked in my very first internship at Tulare County Mental Health and these people were in a day treatment program and I'm like, these people have such serious issues, I can't mess them up. I just knew that, that it was an okay place to just talk to them. And that was eye-opening. Yeah, that was probably huge for you. Did you feel like it, it helped you grow as a person because you were, you were now in a place to where you could talk to people without feeling like they're going to say no or they're going to immediately discredit you? Oh, for sure. I knew that it was safe. And when I, when I was at the family service agency and one of my first clients was a female sex offender, I'm like, I talked to my supervisor like, what do I do with her? What do I ask her? And like really so she comes in looking seductive or she's like doesn't have appropriate attire on i need to confront her on that I'm like yep my like, jeez. so i was really stretched and it was the best thing that i could have done for my personal growth and development yeah, I think that's huge. It puts you in a place to where you you otherwise wouldn't have put yourself in that place. But now that you're there, it forces you to achieve the transformation that you needed. So as you were going through this, how did it help you grow as a person and, and where did it take you? So I was able to develop some incredible skills as a clinician and therapist because of the trenches that I worked in and the real challenging cases and I joke that I could be a first responder because I have that kind of uh, an ability to be really calm in a situation of chaos and in 20 years ago my husband and two daughters and I we moved to San Francisco Bay Area and I had gotten licensed I don't know, a few years before and decided to go into private practice. And I looked in the phone book and there was 155 psychologists. That wasn't even the marriage and family therapists. And that was my, my licenses, MFT. And I thought, how am I ever going to make a name for myself or get clients with all these people here? And the first person I called for office space, he asked, well, what's your area of expertise that you practice in? And I said, well, here's what I've done. And he says, have you ever considered working with the courts? And I said, well, I've done some co-parenting and, and did a little bit of that. He said, if you want to do this, you will have more work than you know what to do with. And so it's like there was a meeting, court liaison meeting, I don't know, a couple days later, he took me, introduced me. One of the judges was from Visalia and Tulare County where the family service agency was. And she knew the judge who wrote a letter for me. And so like I was in, it was the easiest thing. Everything fell into place. And so I became the court's expert that they would refer anything that was court ordered to me having to do with high conflict divorce, custody evaluations, co-parenting, mediation, reunification of parents and kids. Uh, uh, later I became a special master where parents had to come to see me before they filed another court order or complaint because they were like frequent flyers through the court system. And everything was going great until 2005 i had an eight month waiting list and i was a little frazzled on the edges so i was churning out like two custody evaluations a month plus a full caseload of clients and they were all court ordered so they hardly ever missed a session i also had a husband two kids a dog and a cat at home 
and there was no me left. Like I lost me. And so that was another like huge, that's probably my second hugest, biggest, I don't know if that's the right language word, probably not English. Um, <laughs> Good enough for this. Yeah. <laughs> we'll make it work. But as I think about it, that it was the biggest life-changing event next to my childhood situation. And what, hap what came out of that, I could have never imagined. I couldn't have planned, but I took some time off and I knew I had to do something different and my life could never go back to being what it was. When I was working, I was aware over the years, like, oh, I lost, I lost myself, get myself back. I lost myself and get myself back. And I loved the work. My overly responsible self loved doing these evaluations and the writing and figuring out all the, the pieces like a jigsaw puzzle. But when I took on so much work and I couldn't humanly, it was not physically possible to do everything that I said yes to. I knew there was a problem. I was disconnected from family, friends. I was starting to feel exhausted all the time, not eating well, not sleeping well. So I took some time off and it took six months to get clients out of my head. That's how much that I was holding these big, huge, important family pieces that would go into making recommendations to the court, which to me felt easy, but I didn't realize until I stopped how much of an impact that it had on my, my whole being. And I think that's true for, for everybody when we're in the moment of doing what we do, when we're in stress and overwhelm, it's not until we stop that we feel the impact of it. And so I really felt the impact of it. I also became aware that my daughters were growing up and I wanted to spend time with them before they left for college. And that it was really important that I had some enjoyment in my life again for me. And I had lost that. I used to go to lunch with friends and uh, was definitely more social. But all of that went by the wayside when I took on way too much work. I earned great money and I still, I had no time to spend it. So that was a, you know, that was, that was a big, a big moment in my life to, to recognize. Yeah, that's always a tough one. You're, you're earning the money that you wanted to earn, but then you can't spend it and you can't spend time to spend it with the people who you love, who you want to spend it to. So it puts you in this conundrum to where you feel like you can't get out, but you don't realize you need to get out until you actually get out. So it's like this circular problem and we end up in this perpetual cycle that just, it's a, I call it the perpetual cycle of suck. You end up in there for years and years and years. Some people never pull themselves out. And so it's, it's really neat to see that you were able to figure it out. You hit that wall and then you were able to find and understand that you were there and you pulled yourself out and adjusted and created the life that you ultimately wanted that we haven't talked about yet, but that it sounds like you did at this point. So what was so it sounds like and that was the big epiphany we had and so what what did you do next how did you put yourself in a place where you were able to essentially work the way you wanted to work and have the life that you wanted to live yeah what i did i took time off i i did gardening i took up quilting which <laughs> i created a memorial quilt with the pictures that i had from childhood with my mom. And I knew that this would be the last piece of dealing with grief. Like this would be it. So I, I finished like the whole grief thing. I went through this forgiveness process that I created and I, uh, six step forgiveness process. It's in my book, Brain Makeover. And so that last bit of grief was dealt with. I was growing vegetables, which made me happy just playing in the dirt, connecting with friends. I kept a happiest moment of the day journal 
every night I'd write three to five happiest moments of the day and they were simple things like feeling the sunshine on my face or seeing the orange poppies grow <laughs> real simple things and at that same time positive psychology was coming about and I was immersing myself in everything that I could learn about it in the the research of what is this this field that wasn't uh, even available when I went to therapy school it wasn't taught because it wasn't it wasn't discovered or coined and what I learned about being happy we all want to be happy but being happy for the sake of being happy is nothing compared to the benefits of people who are happier they're more resilient they are healthier they earn more money they're easier to get along with they have better uh, social skills their their memory is better and there's a good reason for this when you when I looked at that and then this newer field of epigenetics which is the internal environment uh, pre-genetic uh, before your genes and our genes get turned on and turned off so what you're marinating in whether it's stress hormones or feel-good hormones determines your genetics and I thought wow there is something here I went to some training I kept my my trainings going so that when I did want to return back to work that I would be up to speed and one of the trainings showed brain it was all in brain research and the activity in brains of children when they're in high conflict situations with parents and this light bulb went on for me and I and at that point I knew okay I have this information and there's something so much bigger that I can be doing to help people than just making recommendations to the court on how they're gonna share their children I can help people to actually reconfigure like rewire their brains or prevent them from having these neural pathways that light up with stress and anxiety and fear and worry and I've always had this passion for helping children but I worked with enough children to know that if you don't help the parents those kids just have to go back in the environment and so those were huge 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 pieces that came of this and then I had this light bulb moment like wow what would happen if I work with people who weren't court ordered but really want to make positive lasting changes and that's when everything shifted. Yeah, that sounds like it was a really big transformation for you. And I think the most interesting thing about the, the field of epigenetics is the idea that we, t we have the ability to turn on switches or turn off switches on our own brains, and then it has an impact on our future generations as well. So those things are gonna be flipped on or flipped off for our kids and our children's children. But we also have the capabilities to adjust and flip what we actually flipped. So the, the idea that we can remove stress and set up a trigger, remove some sort of thing from our diet and remove and adjust a trigger, stop smoking and adjust a trigger is just incredible. And the fact that we have the ability to have the essentially elasticity in our body and mind to change and then to change what it's going to do for our future generations. And so when you had this light bulb moment and you created this new thing for you and you had this new identity and this new pathway that you wanted to pursue, how did you how did you go about it? Did you have any issues making it happen? What was the, the next step? Well, what I did was I started applying what I learned to the challenging community of high conflict divorce clients that I had. Because I was working with lots of adults and children and so part of what I was doing and I integrated into my work was the positive psychology. I also had known Dr. Roger Callahan who pioneered EFT tapping, the emotional freedom technique. I had known him, let's see, yeah, it was before we moved to the Bay Area. So that was over 20 years ago, 25. I actually used tapping to calm myself down from my orals 
because that was the most anxiety provoking thing I'd ever been through, uh, even worse than childbirth. <laughs> so <laughs> it's pretty serious. Yeah. And, and the tapping when he designed it was for mental health professionals, primarily psychologists, but he gave me his materials and, uh, and I used it and then put it aside because it was really complex and it didn't seem like it was workable for what I was doing with court cases. Uh, but once it got simplified and became the emotional freedom technique, I really dove in and I figured out how to get the most effective results of freeing stored emotions within minutes, which is what he had designed this. I mean, he discovered it, not necessarily designed, but discovered that when you tap on meridian points that you can free stored emotions similar to acupuncture, but without needles. And with my laser assessment skills from being a custody evaluator, I could really zone in on patterns and dynamics and habits. So what I was doing in, within minutes, 10, 15 minutes, uh, shifting people's fears and worries, they might be at a stress level of a, a 10 on a scale of one to 10 or maybe a 15. But I dealt with a lot of people with some serious chaos and so they were super stressed and then I could get them down to like a three or a four in 10 to 15 minutes and I'm like wow I am on to something and I was in awe I could not believe this while I was doing this I talked to a couple of friends and they said well you should write a book or no they they first said you should write a blog why don't you blog because blogging had just become popular and and well, I have no idea how to set this up. I have no no knowledge of how to do any of, of the computer stuff in that world. I wasn't even sure that anybody would want to read what I wrote or that writing, like I don't have the gift of language. I just have a message. And so I don't think of myself as a writer, but somebody who has a message to get out. So one of my friends said, I'll set you up. And it was that easy. And when she said she set it up and like we picked the name and the whole thing and everything fell into place with ease as if it was my destiny to have this. And the very first time I wrote my blog and I go to push send, it's like, yikes, now I'm going to be public. Because remember, my whole life has never been about me. It has been about my my mom or my parents, uh, my clients, my kids, but never was I visible. And so it was pretty scary hitting send. And I developed, I don't know, maybe a following of 50, 60 people over a time, but I blogged five days a week, just short couple paragraphs, uh, and I did that for a year and out of that eventually came my first book called Brain Makeover and it's a weekly guide to a happier, healthier and more abundant life. 52 weekly readings, page, page and a half, two pages long, easy read. And when I decided to come out with the book, I knew I needed speaker training. So one of my husband's clients sends me an email. She didn't ask to be if I could be on her email list or anything, but where she worked, they it was like a shared workspace and they were hosting a, a class there for speaker training. And I looked at it and like I almost deleted the email, but fortunately I looked and and I was like, wow, I need that. So I signed up, I went. And it took me about a year. My book was ready about a year before I was to be able to become a speaker, learn to promote it, figure out what I was doing, uh, my messaging, who I wanted to be ultimately speaking to, who would benefit from it, what kind of workshops that I would lead. Like 
everything, the whole world open up. And anytime anybody would ask what's new, I'd say, what isn't new? And it was thrilling. And I knew it was time. Yeah, that's exciting when you, you put yourself in a place to where just simply writing that blog was a huge challenge for you. And then realizing that that blog can become a book and then that book becomes your ability to become a better speaker. And then from those courses, you learn how to essentially market and create the dynamic that you need to talk about it in the right way. And then you understand how to pair that book up with workshops. And then you've got yourself a full-blown ecosystem that can help you grow and create the exact practice that you want and the lifestyle that you needed. Exactly. And so that's what I do now. And I, I have shifted to working with uh, biz a lot of business people, entrepreneurs. Also, I've done several workshops at our local uh, cancer community center. And so I have people with health issues, uh, recovering from cancer, or have had cancer, do have cancer. And I can help them deal with their fears, their concerns, being able to get clarity on what's right for them. It is the most satisfying thing to change someone's life for the better and have them permanently shift it in a way that you couldn't do with talk therapy. There's no way. Yeah, it's really interesting how how you've developed your own sort of mechanism to make this work and how it goes beyond talk therapy and takes what you learned from your past and what you experienced and went through and understood into your schooling and into what you learned from EFT and into facing your own fears and branched into what you're doing now that creates the the full-blown ecosystem of what you what you've built based on your whole life of learning exactly and then two and a half years ago my dad had a stroke and I was flying back from one of my visits with him he's in Southern California and like my guidance and intuition said it's time to write your next book and so while brain makeover was my uh, 52 messages from healthy mind uh, every Monday I wrote on healthy mind the rest of the week I wrote about healthy body, healthy eating, a healthy recipe, and family fun. And I took all of those uh, blog posts that I had, I looked them over and I decided it's time to put this into a book so that other people can make the lifestyle changes to be healthier and happier. There is so much information now that wasn't available 40 years ago on the effects of lifestyle, of eating, of exercise, uh, your thoughts. All of that is in my book called Tired and Hungry No More, Not Your Ordinary Guide to Reclaiming Your Health and Happiness. And I do have 10 EFT tapping scripts in there that deal with common ways that people self-sabotage. There's a script in there on stress. There's one on sleep. There's exciting information about sleep that's out now uh, because it's such a huge problem for about 70 million people in the U.S. Yeah, that's true. It's one of the biggest problems I see. Someone comes in and, and sleep is always a big issue. Then sleep becomes coupled with anxiety. Then it becomes coupled with fear and it just creates a snowball effect. So I think if you can manage your sleep and figure out what's going on, you put yourself in a lot better position to combat everything else. I think it's more important than your even your exercising or your nutrition because it's the thing that'll impact and cause everything else to fall apart. Exactly. If I were to put things in order, which I have asked, uh, been asked that, I would say, get your thoughts in order and right next to that is get your sleep in order because if your thoughts are not serving you well and you're you're exhausted and not sleeping well both of those can go hand in hand uh, when you don't sleep well you don't feel well of course your thoughts are going to be off but the better you can manage your sleep and get significant rest it helps your brain your cells, everything gets to repair and rejuvenate. 
and it's life-changing. I think that most people don't know how good they can feel. And so they don't make these kinds of changes that really you don't have to be making a whole lot of them in order to feel a whole lot better than you do. Exactly. And it starts with, like you're saying, your thoughts are number one. Once you learn to sleep well, it activates hormones that tell you to eat less. So you, you don't eat as much. If you don't sleep well, it activates hormones that tell you to eat more. So these all, all these things just stem into creating the one ecosystem inside your body that works in tandem with every other piece. So your, your thoughts, your mental health, your social health, your sleep, your fitness, your nutrition. And I even see nowadays that it, wealth comes into play as a big piece and not wealth like you're out there trying to be rich, but wealth in, in the idea that if you can manage your finances and you're not stressed about out about it all the time, 24-7, it's going to put you in a place to where all of the other things actually do a lot better because you're not worried, you're not stressed, and you're not freaking out because you can't pay your bills or something like that. Exactly. Well said. Thanks. So this has been a good good interview. I think one of the big things that people should do is go check out your latest book. What was it called again? It's Tired and Hungry No More. So Tired and Hungry No More. Go check it out. Can you get it on Amazon? You can get or... it Amazon or everywhere that books are sold. Perfect. I like it. I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. And I'll pick myself up a copy and read it to add to my collection of 17,000 books. <laughs> Thanks for jumping on, Phyllis. I had a, I think this was a really good conversation. We talked about some great things, and we talked about a lot of issues I think people have that they hide, and all it takes is hearing this to plant the seed to create the change that you need in your life. Thank you so much, Chandler. You're welcome. And last thing, if you could put it down in one sentence, what would be your biggest piece of advice for people listening? I would say don't give up because it is possible to significantly significantly improve your life once you're open to it and willing that things will show up and it doesn't have to take a long time i like it you can create the impact you want in a short amount of time you just have to make the decision to make the change I hope y'all enjoyed this episode. It's going to be exciting once you're listening to it. I was having a good time actually doing it. I know Phyllis had a great time. Both of us are here smiling, having a good experience. Make sure you go check out her book. And if you have any questions for me, just shoot me a Facebook message, facebook.com forward slash Chanslogic, including if you can't find the book for some reason, then I can send you the link over there. And if they want to contact you, how can they contact you, Phyllis? My website is the best, and that is phyllisginsburg.com. I'll spell that, P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-G-I-N-S-B-E-R-G. Perfect. Thanks again for jumping on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome.